Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 354 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Commander John W. Young. For more than 50 years, John W. Young has served his country as a military aviator, NASA astronaut, manager, and spokesman for human spaceflight. He has logged more than 15,000 hours of flying time in prop-driven aircraft, jets, helicopters, and experimental aircraft, more than 9,000 hours in T-38s, and has flown six space flights totaling 835 hours. John Young is the only astronaut to have piloted four different classes of spacecraft. Gemini, Apollo Command Service Module, Apollo Lunar Module, and Space Shuttle. During his 42 years with NASA, Young flew six missions, including two to the moon, set a lunar rover speed record on the moon's surface, and was the first person to orbit the moon alone during the Apollo 10 mission. John Watts Young was born at St. Luke's Hospital in San Francisco, California on September 24, 1930 to William Young, a civil engineer, and Wanda Howland Young. His father lost his job during the Great Depression and the family moved to Cartersville, Georgia in 1932. And in 1936, the family moved to Orlando, Florida, where he attended Princeton Elementary School. When Young was five years old, his mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia and taken to the Florida State Hospital. Soon after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Young's father joined the Navy as a CB and left Young and his brother Hugh in the care of a housekeeper. Young's father returned after the war and became a plant superintendent for a citrus company. Young attended Orlando High School, where he competed in football, baseball, and track and field. He graduated in 1948. Young was a Boy Scout as well and earned the rank of second class. We did a lot of work with uh, space and read a lot of books about space. Uh, Buck Rogers and, and Flash Gordon and uh, 
Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, books on uh, probably the first science fiction, you know, John Carter on Mars and that bunch. We did a lot of that. We had a lot of models that we worked on, uh, little tiny models, but to say that you'd ever be an astronaut was just not practical because there wasn't any such thing. Young then attended the Georgia Institute of Technology on a Navy ROTC scholarship. He completed a midshipman cruise aboard the USS Missouri, where he roomed with future Apollo 10 crewmate Thomas Stafford, and another cruise aboard the USS Newport News. His senior year, Young served as regiment commander of his ROTC detachment. He was a member of the Honor Society's Scabbard and Blade, Tau Beta Phi, Omicron Delta Kappa, Phi Kappa Phi, Annex Society, and the Sigma Chi Fraternity. In 1952, Young graduated second in his class with a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering and was commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Navy on June 6, 1952. Young applied to become a naval aviator but was selected to become a gunnery officer aboard the USS Laws out of Naval Base San Diego. He completed a Pacific deployment as a fire control and division officer on the USS Laws in the Sea of Japan during the Korean War. In May 1953, he received orders to flight school at Naval Air Station Pensacola. Young first flew the SNJ-5 Texan in flight school and was then selected for helicopter training. He flew the HTL-5 and HUP-2 helicopters and completed helicopter training in January of 1954. Young returned to flying the SNJ-5 and advanced to fly the T-28 Trojan, F-6F Hellcat, and the F-9F Panther. He graduated from flight school and received his aviator wings in December of 1954. After flight school, Young was assigned to Fighter Squadron 103 at Naval Air Station Cecil Field to fly the F-9F Cougar. In August 1956, he deployed with the 6th Fleet aboard the USS Coral Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. Young flew during the Suez Crisis, but did not fly in combat. His squadron returned in February of 1957 and later that year began the transition to fly the F-8U Crusader. In September of 1958, his squadron deployed with the 6th Fleet on the USS Forrestal to the Mediterranean Sea. In January of 1959, Young was selected to be in Class 23 at the United States Naval Test Pilot School and returned home from deployment. In 1959, Young graduated second in his class and was assigned to the Armament Division at the Naval Air Test Center. While there, he worked alongside future astronaut Jim Lovell and tested the F-4 Phantom II fighter weapons systems. In 1962, he set two world 
Time to Climb records in the F4, reaching 3,000 meters in 34.5 seconds and 25,000 meters in 227.6 seconds. The risks were high, but so was the glory. And Young himself set two world records, although now, he says, it was just a job. You like to, to uh, do jobs that uh, allow you to get hands-on experience with uh, making new vehicles work. Yeah, I think that advance in uh, technology is very important to the world today, it really is. That's what drives you? Pretty much these days, yeah. In 1962, Young was assigned to fly with Fighter Squadron 143 until September 1962. Young would continue his association with the Navy as a captain, and in September 1976, after 25 years of military service, he retired. In September of 1962, Young was selected to join NASA Astronaut Group 2. Young and his family moved to Houston and began his astronaut flying, physical, and academic training. After he completed his initial training, Young was assigned to work on the environmental control system and survival gear. Young's team selected the David Clark G3C pressure suit, and he helped develop the waste disposal and airlock systems. In April of 1964, Young was selected as the pilot of Gemini 3, commanded by Gus Grissom. The crew had originally been Alan Shepard and Thomas Stafford, but they were replaced when Shepard was diagnosed with Meniere's disease. Felt very good. We'd worked very hard to uh, get started in the Gemini program, and it was a real honor to be picked to go on a first flight. There again, anybody could have done the job. In fact, they had picked two other fellows to go earlier, and it was uh, they had to cancel them out because of one reason or another. So it was uh, not only did I feel very good, I felt lucky as a Dickens. The Gemini 3 backup commander was Wally Sherall, and Tom Stafford was the backup pilot. Young enjoyed his Gemini 3 training. This is parasail in the Gemini program that we practice because we use uh, ejection seats. And so uh, the theory was that you had to know how to land in water with a pressure suit on. It was good training. It was a lot of fun. Parasailing, you know, is the kind of thing people do now uh, at the resorts all over the place. But back in, back in those days, that was in the early 60s, it was uh, something new. And they'd shake you at about, as I recall, 11 cycles per second. And we found out that anything in excess of about a quarter of a G, the instrument panel was so blurred that you couldn't read it. They would run at the at the Gemini launch vehicle profile, which is about, uh, shoot, I don't know, it went all the way up to seven Gs. Well, it just feels like your hand's seven times heavier than it would be normally. But the part that they were interested in, they only went to like four and a half Gs. That's nothing. There's a special technique involved in getting out so you didn't uh, get water in the spacecraft. And we went to survival training all over the world. Uh, Panama, we trained for desert survival training in, uh, at Reno, Nevada, and trained for uh, water survival training at, uh, in Pensacola with the Navy. 
The primary purpose of Gemini 3 was to test the ability of the spacecraft to perform orbital maneuvers throughout the flight. Biological experiments were assigned to test the effects of radiation on human blood and microgravity on cell division, and an experiment to test re-entry communications was created. Both crews initially trained in simulators at the McDonnell facilities in St. Louis, Missouri, and moved their training when the simulators were set up at the Manned Spacecraft Center and Kennedy Space Center in October of 1964. Both primary and backup crews participated in Gemini 3's capsule systems test before it left the McDonnell facility. The capsule was brought to the Kennedy Space Center on January 4, 1965, and both crews trained in it from February 14 to March 18, 1965. Young advocated for a longer mission than the planned three orbits, but his suggestion was rejected. On March 23, 1965, Young and Grissom entered their capsule at 7.30 a.m., they conducted their pre-flight systems checkout ahead of schedule, but had to delay the launch after there was a leak in the oxidizer line in the Titan II booster. Gemini 3 launched at 9.24 a.m. from Launch Complex 19 and entered a 122 by 182 kilometer elliptical orbit. 20 minutes into the flight, Young recognized multiple anomalous systems readings and determined that there might be issues with the instrument power supply. He switched from the primary power supply to the backup, which solved the issue. Young successfully completed the radiation experiment on human blood, but Grissom accidentally broke a handle and was unable to complete his assigned experiment on cell division. Gemini 3 successfully conducted its orbital maneuver test that allowed it to circularize its orbit, change its orbital plane, and lower its perigee to 72 kilometers. On the third orbit, Young fired the retro rockets to begin re-entry. The lift the capsule experienced during re-entry was less than predicted, and Gemini 3 landed 84 kilometers short of its target area. After the parachutes deployed, the crew shifted the capsule to its landing orientation, which caused both of them to be thrown forward into the windshield and damaged the faceplates on their helmets. The crew remained inside the capsule for 30 minutes as they waited for a helicopter to retrieve them, and they and their capsule were successfully recovered aboard the USS Intrepid. During the flight, it was discovered that Young had smuggled a corned beef sandwich aboard, which he and Grissom shared while testing food. The House Committee on Appropriations launched a hearing regarding the incident, and some members argued that the two astronauts had disrupted the scheduled food test. Here's how Young remembered the flight. This is the first uh, flight of, uh, you may have to dim the lights a little bit so y'all can see it. This is a Gemini 3 with me and Gus lifting off. And uh, we learned a lot on the first flight. We staged uh, quite high uh, because they didn't know what the aerodynamics was supposed to be just quite right. And we also uh, 
the main engine cut off. We got seven G's through the test, through the chest. We'd already proved that you could fly uh, on a, a centrifuge up at Wright Patterson. You could actually control a vehicle flying with 15 G's through the test chest, and uh, although it hurts a little bit, you don't gray out, and you can still control a vehicle, which is pretty important. Well, that machine gets to orbit in five minutes and 30 seconds. And fortunately, you're breathing pure oxygen, so you can hold your breath for five minutes and 30 seconds. Young then trained as backup pilot for Gemini 6A. But after the corned beef controversy, it seemed that NASA was not sure what to do with him. Other Group 2 astronauts with flight experience were quickly moved to the Apollo program while astronauts such as Scott Carpenter and Gordon Cooper were sidelined for lesser infractions. In the end, NASA chose just to reprimand Young. Then, the assignment of Gemini 7 backup command pilot Ed White to Apollo created an opening for Young to be commander of Gemini 10. As a result, on January 24, 1966, Young and Mike Collins were assigned as the Gemini 10 commander and pilot, with Al Bean and Clifton Williams as the backup crew. The primary mission of Gemini 10 was to dock with an Agena target vehicle and use its engines to maneuver. Using the Agena's engines to maneuver had been a failed objective of Gemini 8 and 9. The mission plan for Gemini 10 to dock with its assigned Agena target vehicle and then maneuver to rendezvous with the already orbiting Agena that had been previously assigned to Gemini 8. In the event of a failure of Gemini 10's target vehicle, the mission would still launch and attempt a rendezvous with Gemini 8's target vehicle. The Agena target vehicle was launched on July 18, 1966 at 3.39 p.m. and successfully entered orbit. Gemini 10 was launched as scheduled later that day at 5.20 p.m. from Launch Complex 19 within the 35-second launch window that maximized its chances of making the dual rendezvous. Once in orbit, the crew attempted to navigate to their first rendezvous using celestial navigation, but were unable to navigate and required inputs from mission control. Young maneuvered to a 265 by 272 kilometer orbit to prepare for the rendezvous and he had to make two mid-course corrections due to misalignment during the maneuver burns. Gemini 10 did successfully rendezvous and dock with the Agena target vehicle at 11.12 p.m. The higher-than-expected fuel used during the mid-course corrections caused Flight Director Glenn Lunny to cancel planned additional docking practice once the capsule had completed its rendezvous. Using the Agena's engines, Gemini 10 maneuvered to a 294 by 763 kilometer elliptical orbit, which set a new altitude record for a crewed vehicle at Apogee. 
Gemini 10 used the rockets on the Agena to maneuver and rendezvous with the Gemini 8 Agena and set another new altitude record of 764 kilometers. This shows a picture that we took on Gemini 10. We fired our motors and uh, when we're docked with the Agena spacecraft and it boosts us up to 414 nautical miles. And we went through the South Atlantic anomaly. And the South Atlantic anomaly introduces a lot of radiation into your, into your body on board the spacecraft. And in fact, the report kind of brags about it. They brag about how the Gemini 10 guys got a lot more radiation than the Gemini um, 11 guys did because they went up higher, but they weren't in the South Atlantic anomaly. Well, since I was on Gemini 10, you know, my nose still glows in the dark. Young fired the Agena's engines to lower the apogee to 382 kilometers and later circularized the orbit with another burn to raise the perigee to 377 kilometers, which was 17 kilometers below the Gemini 8 Agena. Mike Collins performed a stand-up EVA where he stood in the door of the Gemini capsule to photograph the southern Milky Way to study its ultraviolet radiation. He began a color photography experiment, but did not finish it as he and Young's eyes began filling with tears due to irritation from the anti-fog compound in their helmets. Gemini 10 undocked from its Agena and performed two maneuvers to rendezvous with the Gemini 8 Agena. Gemini 10 successfully rendezvoused with its second target vehicle, 47 hours into the mission, and Young accomplished station keeping to keep the capsule approximately 3 meters from the Agena vehicle. Collins conducted an EVA to retrieve a micrometeorite experiment package. After he handed the package to Young, Collins extended his umbilical to test his maneuverability using a nitrogen gun but struggled with it and had to pull himself back to the capsule with his umbilical cable. The crew maneuvered away from the Agena and lowered their perigee to 106 kilometers. Young then conducted the retro fire burn and manually flew the re-entry. The capsule landed 3.4 miles from the recovery ship, the USS Guadalcanal, in the western Atlantic Ocean on July 21, 1966. After the crew was recovered and aboard the ship, flight controllers completed several burns on the Agena target vehicle to put it into a 352-kilometer circular orbit to be used as a target for future missions. Here's how John Young remembered the Gemini 10 mission. We did a rendezvous with that uh, Agena, which was passive. We did it by eyeball. Uh, the kind of old techniques that you would use in uh, pre-World War I days. It was a lot of fun to do that. I think the uh, thing that the Gemini 10 mission achieved that was most significant from a technical standpoint was the use of that Dr. Gina to uh, extend the range of orbits that you could fly. Uh, that The fact that I was able to fly on that Gina and uh, Mike Collins was able to crawl over and bring a package back that had been up on that Agena for three months while it was up in space. In other words, built, visited another passage satellite from space and bring something back. I think that was really a significant milestone. We 
We also made a landing that was uh, about as close to, as you can get to the ship without being on the flight deck, and that was pretty good. So we had a lot. Of, we had a really interesting mission from start to finish. And in fact, the old Gemini allowed us to demonstrate a real routine operations in uh, near Earth space. In its day, it it did things that uh, even now uh, the Russians are uh, claiming our routine. So it was really something. After Gemini was over, Young was assigned the job of troubleshooting Apollo systems and, of course, training for actual Apollo missions. We had to go back and redesign it. It's a typical kind of engineering thing that astronauts do, which sounds very glamorous, but they really spend a heck of a lot of time doing dog work of that nature. Young was originally assigned as backup to the second crewed Apollo mission, along with Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan. After the delays caused by the Apollo 1 fire in January 1967, Young, Cernan, and Stafford were assigned as the Apollo 7 backup crew. On November 13, 1968, NASA announced that the Apollo 10 crew would be commanded by Stafford with Young as command module pilot and Cernan as the lunar module pilot. The backup crew was Gordo Cooper, Don Isley, and Ed Mitchell. Apollo 10 would be the only F-type mission, which meant crewed entry into the lunar orbit and testing of the lunar module, but without landing. It would serve as a final test for the procedures and hardware before the first lunar landing. During flight preparation, the crew spent over 300 hours in simulators, both at the Manned Spacecraft Center and at Cape Kennedy. Mission Control linked with Young in the Command Module Simulator and Stafford and Cernan in the Lunar Module Simulator to provide realistic training. The crew selected the call sign Charlie Brown for the Command Module and Snoopy for the Lunar Module in reference to the Peanuts comic strip by Charles Schultz. On May 18, 1969, Apollo 10 launched at 11.49 a.m. After the translunar injection burn, Young successfully docked the command module with the lunar module. Here's Young on leaving Earth for the first time. The first two or three hours, the Earth shrinks to about as small as it gets, as you can tell any difference. And from then on, when you're looking back at it, it looks like a picture. There's really not enough uh, dimensions to see anything but something that's flat. It was very strange. It looked almost like something that, out of science fiction. You didn't know whether to believe it or not. But I can tell you that we did it in there. We didn't use mirrors. It was something. Now we see it on our monitor, too. All right, Roger. People will just love being in weightlessness. It is just delightful. It's like swimming underwater with nothing to uh, push against, and it's, it's just a wonderful feeling. Once we get enough people up there who've, who experience it, we'll probably be difficult to get them back, really. Young took celestial navigation measurements while en route to the moon as a contingency for a loss of communication. 
Apollo 10 completed one mid-course correction and Young performed the retrograde maneuver to bring the spacecraft into orbit 110 kilometers above the lunar surface. On May 22nd, Stafford and Cernan entered the lunar module, but were concerned that the docking port's alignment had slipped by 3.5 degrees. Apollo program spacecraft manager George Lowe determined that it was within acceptable limits and the two spacecraft undocked. Young examined the lunar module after the two spacecraft were separated by 9 meters and then maneuvered the command module 3.5 kilometers away. Stafford and Cernan began their descent and flew the lunar module down to 14.4 kilometers above the lunar surface. At the time, there was speculation about whether Stafford would just go ahead and land on the moon since they were so close. There was some discussion at the time that they wanted to land Apollo 10 on the moon, but the feeling was that we just didn't know enough to do that. So we took the next uh, thing, and I was happy to be on the next mission that I could get on. And I think uh, everybody else in the office was the same way. I don't know. Uh, just never would have occurred to me to uh, want it to have been anyplace else than where I was on Apollo 10. The lunar module crew tested the abort guidance system, but had accidentally changed its setting from attitude hold to automatic. As they prepared for the ascent, the lunar module began maneuvering as its automatic setting caused it to search for the command module. Stafford regained control of the spacecraft and flew the ascent towards the meeting with the command module. Young flew alone in the command module and prepared to maneuver to the lunar module in the event that its ascent engine did not work. It's very different from what you see uh, looking through a telescope, uh, traveling over the lunar surface at about a mile a second looking down. Everything is different. The rills are like rivers. There are certain craters uh, at many places on the moon that are uh, bright, speckly, uh, rayed craters that stand out uh, just like stoplights so that you can go around the moon and recognize, uh, once you get to know it, just where you're at on the surface. In fact, much easier than you can recognize where you are on the Earth unless you're a real student of geography. Once the lunar module rendezvoused with the command module, Young successfully docked the two spacecraft. The crew transferred to the command module and undocked from the lunar module, which was flown by mission control into a solar orbit. While still in lunar orbit, Young tracked landmarks in preparation for a lunar landing, then flew the trans-Earth injection maneuver. On May 26th, Apollo 10 re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and safely landed 690 kilometers from Samoa. It landed six kilometers from its recovery ship, the USS Princeton, and the crew was recovered by helicopter. Next, John Young was assigned the backup commander of Apollo 13, along with Charlie Duke and Jack Swigert. Duke exposed both the primary backup crew to German measles, causing the replacement of Ken Mattingly, who was not immune to German measles, by Swigert, as the command module pilot, two days prior to launch. 
On March 3, 1971, Young was assigned as the commander of Apollo 16, along with Duke and Mattingly. Their backup crew was Fred Hayes, Stuart Rusa, and Ed Mitchell. My wife worked for the uh, my wife worked for the people who did a probability risk assessment of going to the moon, and she said she told me that the probability of the Apollo 16 being successful was one in five, and so that's a pretty high risk uh, event. And, uh, the mission's science objective was to study material from the lunar highlands as they were believed to contain volcanic material older than the lunar mare that had been on the sites of the previous Apollo landings. To prepare for their EVAs, Young and Duke participated in field exercises in geological research. They conducted field work at the Mono Craters in California to learn how to identify lava domes and tuff and the Sudbury Basin in Ontario to study breccia. Apollo 16 successfully launched on April 16, 1972. After the spacecraft reached Earth orbit, several problems developed with the S-4B attitude control system, but Apollo 16 was still able to perform its translunar injection burn. Mattingly docked the command module with the lunar module and the crew decided to perform an early checkout of the lunar module over concerns that it had been damaged, but no issues were found. Apollo 16 flew behind the moon 74 hours into the mission and entered into a 20 by 108 kilometer elliptical orbit. The next day, Duke and Young entered the lunar module and undocked, but Mattingly soon reported an issue with the thrust vector controls on the surface propulsion system, which would have prevented the command module from maneuvering in case the lunar module was unable to complete its rendezvous. After a delay, Mission Control approved the landing and Young and Duke began their descent five hours and 42 minutes later than scheduled. We had uh, more than 99 problems that we had to solve in real time, both with our help and the help of Mission Control. Mission Control's uh, people uh, came and, uh, and helped us solve one problem. We didn't know whether we were going to be able to land or not because one of our uh, thrust vector control systems on the command module wasn't working properly. It was oscillating, and they found out it would be okay for us to go down. I thought for sure we are going to have to abort the mission, and we ended up bringing about 200 pounds of moon rack rocks back, but we did solve 99 other problems with the help of mission control and our, doing it ourselves, and that really is what life is all about in a teamwork activity is solving problems in real time and being successful. As the lunar module descended, its projected landing location was 600 meters north and 400 meters west of its target location, but Young took corrective action to adjust their landing location and the lunar module landed 270 meters north and 60 meters west of its targeted location. Here's the uncharacteristically excited John Young as he landed on the moon. Go for landing. 42 LPD. Okay, fuel is good, 10%. That comes to shadow. Okay, down at 3, 50 feet. Down at 4, give me one quick up. You're backing up slightly. Okay, two down. Stand by for contact. 
level off. Better on down. Okay, 76%, plenty fat. Contact. Recalling that moment, ten years later, Young returned to his calm demeanor. Well, if you know NASA, you knew that as soon as we stepped on the lunar surface, we were about uh, 20 minutes behind in our timeline, and I thought, I don't know how we're going to catch up. But on the first ex exploration out there, we managed to catch up and set up a very complex science station and, uh, and do a lot of work on the surface. On April 21st, Young and Duke began their first EVA. Young was the first to exit the lunar module, and his first words on the lunar surface were, quote, I'm glad they got old Br'er Rabbit here, back in the briar patch where he belongs, end quote. The two astronauts set up the lunar rover and deployed the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package. Unfortunately, Young tripped over the cables to the heat flow sensors, which irreparably broke the sensor's communication with Earth. Nevertheless, the two astronauts conducted a seismic experiment using pneumatic hammers and began a traverse to Flag Crater, which was 1.4 kilometers west of the landing site. They set up a geology station at the crater and collected Big Mully, a 11.7-kilogram breccia that was the largest lunar rock collected during the Apollo program. Young and Duke traveled back towards the lunar module, stopping at Spook and Buster craters along the way. Before ending the EVA, they tested the maneuverability of the lunar rover, and they finished the EVA after seven hours on the lunar surface. Young and Duke conducted their second EVA on the next day, April 22nd. They traveled to Cinco Crater to sample at three geology sites with the goal of finding ejecta from the South Ray Crater. After they traveled to collect samples at the nearby Wreck Crater, the rover's navigation system failed, forcing the two astronauts to manually navigate back to the lunar module. On their return trip, they stopped at the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package to take soil samples. They returned to the lunar module and finished their EVA after seven hours on the lunar surface. The third EVA began on the morning of April 23rd. The two astronauts drove to North Ray Crater and collected rock samples from its rim. The area at Descartes was really beautiful. There were... Uh, a couple of craters, North Ray Crater and South Ray Crater, that had beautiful rays that had thrown themselves right across the surface. And it was just, uh, it was just something. The browns and the hues of the surface were, uh, and the uh, extreme whites were just something to behold when you're standing there looking at it. Uh, none of the camera pictures that we took even begin to, to grab any of the contrast that you could see with the eye. They collected further samples from outside the crater to allow scientists to recreate the crater's stratigraphy using its ejecta. They returned to the lunar module and parked the rover to allow its cameras to broadcast their ascent. They ended their EVA after five hours, 
It was shorter than the previous two because of the delayed landing on the lunar surface. On April 24th, the lunar module successfully ascended into lunar orbit and docked with the command module. Ten seconds. What a ride, what a ride. Ryan, you're going one. Roger, looking good here. In total, the astronauts returned 94 kilograms or 210 pounds of lunar samples to the command module. The command module re-entered Earth's atmosphere on April 27th and landed in the ocean approximately 350 kilometers southeast of Christmas Island and the crew was recovered aboard the USS Ticonderoga. Immediately after the mission, Young was assigned as the Apollo 17 backup commander, along with Duke as the backup lunar module pilot and Stu Rusa as the backup command module pilot. Interestingly, Cernan injured his knee playing softball a few months before the flight. Had the injury been more severe, Cernan would have been medically dropped from the flight and Young would have commanded the last two Apollo moon landings. In January of 1973, Young was made chief of the space shuttle branch of the astronaut office. At the time, the overall space shuttle specifications and manufacturers had been determined, and Young's role was to serve as a liaison for the astronauts to provide design input. Young's office recommended changes for the orbiter's RCS thrusters, star tracker, and thermal radiators. In January 1974, he became chief of the astronaut office after the departure of Alan Shepard. One of his first roles after taking over the office was overseeing the Apollo-Soyuz mission, but the remainder of the space flights during his tenure were space shuttle missions. Young flew in the T-38 Talon Chase planes for several of the approach and landing tests of the Space Shuttle Enterprise. In March 1978, Young was selected by George Abey, then Deputy Director of the Johnson Space Center, to be the commander of STS-1 with Robert Crippen flying as the pilot. Young and Crippen trained to be able to repair thermal tiles in orbit but determined that they would be unable to repair the tiles during a spacewalk. STS launched on April 12, 1981 from Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. The first stage of the launch flew higher than anticipated, and the solid rocket boosters separated approximately 10,000 feet higher than the original plan. The rest of the launch went as expected, and STS-1 successfully entered Earth orbit. Vice President George H.W. Bush called the crew during their first full day in orbit to congratulate them on their successful mission. The crew inspected their thermal tiles and determined that some had been lost during launch. Amid concerns that the underside of Columbia might have also lost some thermal shielding, a KH-11 satellite was used to image the orbiter and it was determined that it was safe to re-enter the atmosphere. Young and Crippen tested the orbital maneuvering capabilities of the orbiter as well as its mechanical and computer systems. 
STS-1 re-entered the atmosphere and landed on April 14th at Edwards Air Force Base. We did uh, start to work right after we got off this mission. We started to work on the good old uh, uh, space shuttle, and uh, Captain Crippen and I got to fly the first one back in 1981. It's a remarkable machine, and it, uh, we learned a lot of things on the first flight, and, and um, Dr. Kraft said it best. Dr. Chris Kraft said it the best. He said, we just got infinitely smarter when we got back. We did learn a whole lot of things, like we staged 10,000 feet high, because they didn't know what the normal forces were. They didn't have big wind tunnels. We had real gas effects that messed up where the elevons were on the way back, and we had some oscillations going through Mach 1.6, and we landed real long because uh, the drag was the drag of the of the, uh, the tiles was overestimated. But it all out, all in out, considering it was the first mission uh, where, where we didn't really know what we were doing, but we did it anyhow, uh, it worked out very well. And we did land out there, and uh, we were shooting for 185 knots, and we hit it 184.6. The height of eye in this thing is is farther than you can see. With uh, it's 36 and a half feet up to that place right there, so you can't really uh, you have to practice a lot. We had a shuttle train airplane where we practiced a lot. That height of eye thing uh, would get you. And uh, we we're going to use the radar altimeter, but the radar altimeter is both of them locked on the up on the landing gear, so we didn't have a radar altimeter, so we had to ga gauge it. As the chief of the astronaut office, Young determined the crews that flew on the subsequent test and operational space shuttle missions. Young routinely set in the simulators alongside the crews to determine their effectiveness, and he flew the shuttle training aircraft to test landing approaches prior to the orbiter landing. In 1983, Young flew as the commander of STS-9 aboard Columbia. The flight launched from Launch Complex 39A on November 28, 1983. It carried the first Space Lab module into orbit, and the crew had to conduct a shift-based schedule to maximize on-orbit research in astronomy, atmospheric and space physics, and life sciences. Young tested a new portable onboard computer and attempted to photograph Russian airfields as Columbia orbited overhead. Prior to re-entry, two of Columbia's four primary general-purpose computers failed, which caused a delay in landing as they had to reset them and load the entry options control mode into an alternate computer. After the computer was repaired, Columbia successfully re-entered the atmosphere and landed at Edwards Air Force Base on December 8th. Young remained as the chief of the astronaut office after STS-9, but he was critical of NASA's management following the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster and blamed the disaster on the lack of safety culture within the Space Shuttle program. Young testified before the Rogers Commission and suggested improvements for the safety of the program at NASA. Young had been scheduled to fly as the commander of STS-61J to deploy the Hubble Space Telescope, but the mission was canceled as a result of the Challenger disaster. In May of 1987, Young was replaced as the chief of the astronaut office by Daniel Brandenstein, 
and was reassigned as special assistant to Johnson Space Center Director Aaron Cohen for engineering operations and safety. Young believed that his reassignment was the result of his public criticism of NASA management. Young oversaw the redesign of the solid rocket booster to prevent a repeat of the Challenger disaster, and he advocated for the strengthening of the thermal protection tiles at the chin section of the orbiters. He continued to work on safety improvements in the space shuttle program, including improving the landing surfaces, installation of emergency drag chutes, the inclusion of the global positioning system into the space shuttle's navigation system, and improving landing simulations. In February 1996, he was assigned as the Associate Director Technical of Johnson Space Center, where he was involved in the development of the Shuttle Mir program and the design process for the International Space Station. Finally, after working at NASA for over 42 years, Young retired on December 31, 2004. Throughout his career, he flew for more than 15,275 hours, including more than 9,200 hours in T-38s and 835 hours in spacecraft during six space flights. Additionally, he spent over 15,000 hours in training to prepare for 11 primary and backup crew positions. Following his retirement, Young worked as a public speaker and advocated for the importance of asteroid impact avoidance, colonization of the moon, and climate engineering. In April 2006, Young and Crippen appeared at the 25th anniversary of the STS-1 launch at the Kennedy Space Center and spoke of their experiences during the flight. In November 2011, Young and Crippen met with the crew of STS-135, the last space shuttle mission. In 2012, Young published an autobiography called Forever Young. Now a little information on John's personal life. In December 1955, Young married Barbara White of Savannah, Georgia, and they had two children, Sandra and John, and two grandchildren. They were divorced in the summer of 1971. Later that year, John married Susie Feldman, and they lived in Houston. Young was friends with George H.W. and Barbara Bush, and he vacationed at the Bush compound in Kennebuckport, Maine. Sadly, Young died on January 5, 2018, at his home in Houston, of complications from pneumonia at the age of 87. In 1982, Young was asked what he would like his epitaph to say. This was his response. Good grief. <laughs> I would like not to see any epitaph. <laughs> I have no idea. I worry about a lot of things, but I haven't worried about that yet. 
<laughs> You're really pushing me, aren't you? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> if it were to say, John Young, the ultimate explorer, how would you feel? <laughs> I'd, be, <laughs> I'd feel sorry for the guy who wrote it. <laughs> Shoot. Young earned numerous awards and honors during his long career, and I will list just a few of them. The Navy Distinguished Service Medal with Gold Star, and the Distinguished Flying Cross with two gold stars. The NASA Distinguished Service Medal with three oak leaf clusters. The NASA Exceptional Service Medal. The Congressional Space Medal of Honor the NASA Spaceflight Medal, the NASA Exceptional Engineering Achievement Medal, NASA Outstanding Leadership Medal, NASA Exceptional Achievement Medal. He was inducted into six Aviation and Astronaut Hall of Fames. He was awarded the General James E. Hill Lifetime Space Achievement Award, the Golden Plate Award for Science and Exploration, the American Astronautical Society Space Flight Award, the NASA Ambassador of Exploration Award, and six honorary doctorate degrees. And lastly, I want to end with a final word from John Young. John was asked the question, what makes an astronaut? This was his response. The same thing that makes anybody else uh, that's uh, interested in their line of work. They have to be interested in it have to work hard at it and have to hang in there and uh, do a good job at it. And I think that's true if, if you're making a television production or, or uh, flying an airplane or going fishing. And how did you get where you are? It's called perseverance. If you're the oldest guy there, they let you run it. Salutations and Merry Christmas from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 354 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 16, Commander John W. Young. Hope you enjoyed this 26th episode of 2020. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. As I promised, I have delivered 26 episodes this year, and all of them have been longer than expected. As a result, I will take the customary one-week holiday break. So, our next episode is scheduled to be released on January 7th, 2021. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 179 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most pod catchers. Okay, I had just a couple afterthoughts for this episode. First of all, it's listener reward season. 
And just like last year, if you donated 100 or more during 2020 and have not received a magnet, send me an email and I'll send you one. If you have donated $50 to $99 this year, send me an email and we will send you out a sticker. And this offer is good until December 31st. My email address is mike at spacerockethistory.com. Want to remind everyone also that it's that time of year for what I like to call the emoji maneuver. If you've looked at the donors page, most people have a little emoji next to their name indicating the number of years they have supported the podcast. For instance, for two years support, you get a rocket, three years a moon, four years a satellite, five years a shooting star, six years a galaxy, and so on. Now here's how the emoji maneuver works. If you have not donated before, you can donate in December and get your name on the donor list. Then donate in January and get a rocket emoji next to your name as though you have donated two years in a row. And now that example works for whatever level of emoji you have. So now is the time to execute the emoji maneuver. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Well, I did what I called a brief biography of John Young way back on episode 188. And I I didn't feel right not including a full biography of Young with the Apollo 16 mission. Now, this was the longest biography I have done so far, and rightly so, as John Young got involved in just about everything except Mercury and Skylab. 42 years of a NASA career. That is amazing. What an experience and what a life. They don't put you in six Hall of Fames for nothing. I am totally impressed by John Young, and yet, after all his accomplishment, he seems to be he seemed to be just a humble man. Wouldn't it have been something if he had gotten to fly the Apollo 17 mission too? <laughs> that would have been fantastic. Okay, I'm running long. I need to move on. At this time of year, I like to play the Apollo 8 Christmas message. I think this year, 2020, it is more important than ever. I can't remember a year that was as bad for our country as 2020. In my lifetime, the closest was 1968, when it took the Apollo 8 flight around the moon to somewhat redeem such an awful year. So, Here it is, the message that was so vividly ingrained into my mind as an eight-year-old child. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, 
They was good. And divided the light from the darkness. And God called the white day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning was the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning was the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions and increases. I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and is at the Starship level. David S. from California sent in another donation and is at the Orion level. Andrew W. from Maryland sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington sent in another donation and moved to the Mir ISS level. Zabiganu M. sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level. Keith M. from North Carolina donated at the Apollo level. Julie G. donated at the Apollo level. Scott C. from Texas donated at the Gemini level. Woody J. from Minnesota sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Christian B. from Germany donated at the Soyuz level and earned a rocket emoji. Eric P. donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Jimmy at Free Hollow Books sent in another donation this year and moved to the Vostok level. And Victoria H. from London donated at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors this year are at 248. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. That's uh, quite a ways to go there. (laughs) Our total donors for 2020 have reached 423. Now that is over 55 less donors than 2019. And it's 25 less donors than 2018. But of course, there has been a pandemic. And we are very thankful for the donors that have been able to participate in funding this year. Our total goal for donors this year is 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with the episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. We want to wish you all a heartfelt Merry Christmas and a bright new year in 2021. Now for the drawing. Remember, the winner will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Steve Neal, 
Steve Neal. If you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 423 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were Chariots for Apollo by Mike Collins, The Space Foundation, NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, The Apollo 16 Mission Report, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 355 posted by January 7th, 2021. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.